Now, Republicans get outraged when you say that their entire political strategy these days is voter suppression. They get even more outraged when you stop them from doing it. Yeah. No kidding. Uh. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello there. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, uh, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow says me. And me too, sometimes. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Finally. From Bradblog.com, thank you for joining us. That, of course, is the delightful Desiree Doyen. How are you, Des? I'm all right. I'm well, here. I know you <laughs> That's are. It's a victory in itself. We'll take what we can get. Pretty low bar these days. <laughs> yep. So, uh, yeah, things have been a bit grim of late, no question about it, for all sorts of reasons. And we will end today's show, if uh, time allows, with Desi Doyen's latest Green News report. And man... Talk about grim. Yeah. You you couldn't even come up with one delightful, light, good news story today. We just plumb ran out of time. You're killing me, man. (laughs) You're just killing me. I can only do what's there, you know? Yeah, I know. Uh, On Tuesday night, speaking of we can only do what's there, on Tuesday night, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are having their first presidential debate. It is moderated by Fox News' Chris Wallace. So you know that'll go well. I can't tell you from here whether that's actually good news or bad. Uh, We will discuss whatever happens on our next thrilling broadcast, just to give you something to look forward to or run away from. (laughs) Uh, With that in mind, not everything is terrible right now. It just feels that way. And for very good reason, of course. So I want to catch up with some voting news stories around the country, because as you know, in truth, that is all that matters. Between now and November 3rd, as I see it, and uh, not just through November 3rd, but in the days beyond, beyond the election, uh, our our version of democracy and the enduring mystery of whether we will still have a democracy or something that looks like it by November 4th is a question that hangs in the air right now. And I know that a lot of the stuff that we cover 
uh, on that beat and, and many others gives you justifiably cause for worry and alarm, or at least it should. Like any of us need more worry and alarm these days. So let's begin at least, let's start here, Des, with some okay. less than horrible news today. <laughs> And, and we'll just coast sort of slowly downhill towards the dark pit of despair that is the Green News Report by the end of the show. How's that for Okie a plan? Okie Okay. Uh, as you know, I don't pay much attention to national polls because we don't run national elections in this country. And in truth, all that matters is how people vote in each state, in the state. So state polling is at least of some note, particularly in swing state, uh, battleground state polling, where I will note Joe Biden is said to be leading in pretty much all of them for what it's worth. And yeah, I know, so was Hillary Clinton at this point back in 2016. But in almost every case, Biden is now leading by more than Hillary Clinton was and by margins large enough in most cases that even if polls shifted in Trump's direction by the same amount that they shifted at the end of the race away from Clinton and towards Trump in 2016, uh, Biden would still win in most of those states. Of course, none of that takes, I realize none of that takes into account the many X factors out there regarding, oh, the pandemic and the unprecedented number of absentee ballots this year and the U.S. Postal Service slowdowns sabotage. and sabotage, yes, and new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in many locations and the stolen Supreme Court and how they can still game the system between now and Election Day. And as we've discussed on uh, as we, we talked about yesterday on the show with Mark Joseph Stern, how the Supreme Court. Uh, may game the election even after Election Day, particularly with the court further stolen by that time if Republicans are successful. And I see no reason why they won't be at this point uh, in ramming Amy Coney Barrett through the confirmation process for a six to three advantage on the high court by Election Day. So there's a lot of X factors that I am not forgetting about. Nonetheless, with all of those caveats, let's just start with some encouraging news, shall we? At least for a moment to help kick things off today. Ahead of the first presidential debate of 2020, Newsweek reports Democratic nominee Joe Biden holds a seven-point national advantage over President Donald Trump. Now, again, national advantages don't matter. National polling doesn't matter. But it's noteworthy here because it that is the largest lead, uh, national lead, since former President Bill Clinton's reelection in 1996, according to 538's national polling average. And Desi Doyen, I know you always complain, justifiably so. Seven points, that's all? Yes. It should be much higher than that. I agree. But... It's pretty high. You have to go all the way back to Bill Clinton to find a, a lead that high at this time in the election. The last time a candidate sustained an advantage that large was 20, nearly 25 years ago when Clinton led at the time by eight and a half percentage points over the uh, Republican and former Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole at the time. Clinton then went on to win the election and defeat Dole with 379 electoral votes. 
course, that was a uh, an eight and a half point lead. Biden's is seven points, uh, according to the average. But it is the largest that we've seen nationally at this point in an election in about 25 years. So there is that. Buck up. Clinton's ultimate popular margin that year remains the largest one by either party since Ronald Reagan won in a landslide victory in the 1984 election. Biden has consistently had an edge over Donald Trump by anywhere from six to nine point six percentage points since June. And at least until we see what happens in the debates and any other October surprises between now and November 3rd, his lead over Donald Trump has been remarkably consistent on a national level in any event. But the news is similarly encouraging for Joe Biden slash for the future of our Democratic Republic in key battleground states as well. 538's latest polling averages show Biden ahead by larger margins than Hillary Clinton was in 2016 in a number of those battleground states, including uh, an 8.7 lead in Minnesota, almost seven points in Michigan, six and a half points in Wisconsin, almost five and a half points in Pennsylvania and three and a half point lead in Arizona. Nobody was even talking about Hillary Clinton winning in Arizona in 2016, to my memory. Also, a 1.7 point lead in Florida and a 1.1 percent lead in North Carolina. All of those states, except for Minnesota, reportedly went to Donald uh, Trump in 2016. Joe Biden is now leading in all of them. Back in 2016, while Democrat Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote with a margin of just over two points, she still ended up losing, however, in the Electoral College to Trump. And ultimately, that is all that matters, at least in most cases. Most cases. As I noted again yesterday, the size of Biden's popular vote margin over Donald Trump could very much come into play if Trump manages to get his stolen Supreme Court to kick the entire election over to the House of Representatives to be decided. And uh, if they actually you know, decide who wins the presidency, well, the popular vote could make a difference in that decision. In that body, in the House, Republicans actually hold an advantage because if the House votes to decide who will be the president, according to the 12th Amendment, each state gets one vote and the GOP has a majority of the state delegations in the House, even if they don't have a majority of representatives in the uh, entire chamber. So that's why it's important for Democrats, yes, even in reliably blue states like California, to help run up the popular vote margin for Joe Biden, uh, since it, it's, a, it's a lot easier to argue in the House of Representatives that the guy who received 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 million votes more than the other guy should be the one that is named the president. Biden's sizable national polling lead may, emphasis may, neutralize Trump's potential advantage when it comes to the Electoral College in this year's election. But let's let's focus on Pennsylvania for a moment, since that is where many people believe the election will be decided one way or another right now. 
uh, regarding it uh, as a uh, as this year's tipping point state. I know Team Trump certainly sees it that way, believing that if they don't win Pennsylvania, it's going to be tough to win the Electoral College. So new polling out today from The Washington Post and ABC News finds former Vice President Joe Biden leads Donald Trump in the contested battleground state of Pennsylvania, buoyed by strong support in the Philadelphia suburbs and his competitiveness in the state's western counties that were previously a stronghold in 2016 for Donald Trump. Biden's support right now stands at 54 percent to Trump's 45 percent among the Keystone state's likely voters. That is a nine point advantage in the state as of right now, at least according to this poll today. I know that I uh, noted that the uh, average of the polls taken in recent weeks in Pennsylvania uh, give uh, Biden a five, almost five and a half percent lead. This one says he's ahead by nine points at this point. The Post notes, however, that Biden's current edge among likely voters appears sizable, but is not definitive because there's a five point margin of error that applies to each candidate's support. So I want people to understand how margins of error work. <laughs> Good idea. Because they go both ways. It can mean that Biden actually has five points less support, fewer support, less support, I think. Then the polls right now show that this particular poll right now shows and that Trump could also have five points more support. So when you see a five point, they say, you know, plus or minus five points that applies to both candidates and in both directions. So similarly, by the way, Donald uh, uh, Joe Biden could have five points more than he's showing. Donald Trump could have five points less, in which case it could be a 20 point race. It could be a blowout or Yes, Donald Trump could actually be ahead of Biden by one point if you factor in the margin of error. But that would mean that every error favors Trump, and that is usually not the case. Other polls of Pennsylvania this month have similarly found Biden leading Trump by an average of about eight points. Trump's overall approval ratings in the state among registered voters is just 43 percent positive, 55 percent negative. Um, and 49 uh, percent of those say they uh, disapprove, quote, strongly. It's hard to overcome a 55 percent negative rating in any state at this late in the game. Pennsylvania is the most populous of the three Rust Belt states that provided that proved decisive in the 2016 election. The Post notes Trump defeated Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania, as well as Wisconsin and Michigan, by less than one percentage point each. All three states had voted for Democratic presidential nominees in the previous six elections before reportedly shifting to Trump in 2016. I say reportedly because nobody ever bothered to actually count all of the ballots in those states, relying on whatever the computer tallies reported, either correctly or incorrectly. Who knows? <laughs> uh, Pennsylvania's 20 electoral votes make it the most valuable of those three Rust Belt states, and the Trump and Biden campaigns are focusing their resources uh, accordingly, to try to tip the state uh, to their direction. The candidates, too, have repeatedly campaigned in person in the state. It was home to Biden's headquarters, 
his election as campaign headquarters before the pandemic forced it to close. Uh, And of course, it's also Joe Biden's birthplace in Scranton. So he has a bit of an edge there in the state in that regard. The Post-ABC poll suggests Biden is challenging Trump for support among key groups and areas that drove Trump's 2016 win in the state. And this is key. Uh, These include white voters without four-year college degrees who account for about half of Pennsylvania's electorate. Trump leads Biden by 17 points among that group, that group of white voters without uh, four-year college degrees. Trump is leading by 17 points. That does not sound good, except that Trump won them by more than 30 points both nationally and specifically in Pennsylvania four years ago. Biden also boasts a 23-point lead among white college graduates and a 64-point lead among non-white voters, similar to or larger than Clinton's key uh, advantages with those, uh, with those two groups of voters four years ago. Uh, But the fact that he has pretty much that Biden has pretty much cut in half the number of white non-college educated voters in the state is going to make it very hard for Donald Trump to win it at this point. If things you know, if if everybody's sort of voting on a level playing field, which, of course, we know is not the case, but (laughs) just giving you the numbers here. Trump's Trump's support in western Pennsylvania also appears much weaker than in 2016. Uh, If you take out uh, Pittsburgh, that's Allegheny County, Trump has 50 percent support to Biden's 47 percent support among registered voters in western counties in the state. So uh, that's a uh, three point lead. That does not sound good, Uh, except in 2016, Trump won those counties by 29 points, 29 points. And now it's down to sort of 50 to 47. So it's a three point gap Uh, for the record. In 2012, Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney won that region by 16 points on his way to losing the state to then President Barack Obama. So uh, Romney lost the state by winning that region by 16 points. And now Trump is leading it by just about three points. If we have a level playing field for voters, and I know it's a very big if, it will be tough for Trump to overcome those numbers unless things change. And, of course, there is still plenty of time for that to happen. But for the moment, uh, so far, so good for Biden in the key swing state of Pennsylvania. Trump also enjoys sizable leads in central Pennsylvania, where he won decisively in 2016. He's got a smaller edge in northeastern Pennsylvania. In the central part of the state, for example, his lead is nearly 30 points. But that is the same as it was in 2016. So it doesn't make up for his losses elsewhere. In northeast Pennsylvania, he receives 56 percent support. But that is also pretty much the same as it was four years ago. Does that make sense? He's doing uh, the same or worse than he was across the entire state. There is nowhere in the state that he is doing better, and it was a state that he barely won back in 2016. So nowhere in Pennsylvania has he improved his chances over 2016. Correct. It's only been the same or Or uh, falling back. Yeah. Biden is strongest, however, in southeastern Pennsylvania. That's Philadelphia and the suburbs around it. 
The Post-ABC poll finds that the former vice president is leading Trump by more than two to one in the Philadelphia area. That includes its uh, populous suburbs. Clinton won those counties together by a 14-point margin in 2016, but they have grown much more Democratic since then. So for the moment, again, Trump is either doing the same or worse than he was in the uh, in the state in 2016 when he barely eked out what we will call a win there. But if uh, if if Trump can replicate what happened in 2016, Biden could still be in trouble there. Clinton's lead deteriorated in the final two weeks of that campaign, a time in which her campaign uh, was facing renewed questions about her private email system. Exit polls show that Trump won the late deciding voters by double digits and carried the state by about 45,000 votes or seven tenths of one percent. So anyone who rests based on these poll numbers uh, has not paid attention to history or the disasters that could happen at the polling places in regions where Biden needs to run up the vote. Regions like Philadelphia, which is one of the reasons I'm so worried about their new unverifiable touchscreen voting systems and how those could blow up in any number of ways, preventing voters from being able to vote. Ransomware attacks. I'm very worried about that. But we discussed those machines uh, in Philadelphia specifically last week on this show with Art Levine explaining how uh, insane it is that, as he reported at Washington Monthly last week, how insane it is that Democrats in some of the most Democratic-leaning areas of swing states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina, uh, not to mention Ohio and Texas, have moved to these newfangled, unverifiable, easily manipulated voting systems. It is insane. But you'll be hard-pressed to hear many state Democrats complaining about it in those places, other than Ohio. Actually, the state Democratic Party in Ohio has, has been pretty good, according to uh, Art Levine. But, of course, Ohio has some experience with computerized voting screwing over presidential candidates and voters. Am I right, John Kerry? Just so you remember. Yeah. I do. If you don't, you should go to bradblog.com yeah. and look for the 2004 election. Yeah, You'll don't find do a it. whole wealth no, of stuff. It'll be a it. rabbit hole. Don't You'll never do it. recover. Life is difficult enough these days. <laughs> do not go to bradblog.com ever. And I think that's just a good. 2004. Yeah. Especially at 2004. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so that's one of those X factors. Uh, you know, who will be allowed to vote? More specifically, whose vote will actually be counted? I will get back to Pennsylvania in in a bit here, but just by way of an example of how things could go unexpectedly sideways this year, no matter what the polls now tell us, we are seeing a disaster unfold right now in New York, New York City, specifically Brooklyn, when it comes to absentee voting. Uh, something uh, that that like Pennsylvania, the state you know, does not have a lot of experience with uh, absentee voting since absentee voting in, in both states prior to this year was very restricted. Here's what's going on right now in New York City. Voters uh, so far, mostly in Brooklyn, I believe, say said that they're uh, that they have received their mail in ballots this week. But they were surprised to find that they were printed with the wrong names and IDs and included incorrect return labels. Some voters said they received absentee ballots that were mislabeled as official ballots for military members. 
Others said the envelope meant to return the ballot did not bear their name or address, but somebody else's. Now, as to the ballots labeled as military ballots, reportedly that was a printer error that the Board of Elections says uh, they, they failed to put a slash between the words military and absentee at the top where it says, you know, this is your New York City military slash absentee ballots. Apparently those ballots are just fine, even if they appear to be labeled as military ballots. And uh, though it's confusing, it won't change how those votes are tallied. City Councilman Jimmy Van Bramer told the New York Post there's just mass confusion about these ballots and what people are supposed to do with them. People were already not trusting this process and they were already not trusting the Board of Elections to count the ballots right. Okay, but when it comes to the military issue, you can forget about that. That's not a problem. You can vote that ballot. Yes. The bigger problem is that as the Gothamist reports in Brooklyn, voters are receiving incorrect return envelopes with different names and addresses. So voters receive their ballots, but the envelope to return those ballots in the mail have the name and address of someone else. So if they sign and put their own info on that ballot as required when returning it and they put it into that envelope, their name won't match the name on the printed envelope. So that is a huge problem. As one voter tweeted, imagine my surprise, Board of Elections of New York City, to have opened my absentee ballot envelope today only to find one, a military ballot, and two, someone else's name and address on it. This is of grave concern, she wrote. This is all going so well. Ain't it, though? Voters are uh, required to sign their names on their ballots uh, to return them, meaning that the mislabeled return envelopes would likely be voided if they are mailed in because the names and the signatures don't match. So the New York City Board of Elections told The Hill that the error was made by a vendor. Oh, sure. Blame the vendor. Phoenix Graphics. They were contracted to print and mail the ballots for Brooklyn and Queens voters. The Board of Elections Executive Director Michael Ryan said in an emailed statement last night, quote, we are determining how many voters have been affected, but we can assure that the vendor will address this problem in future mailings. Okay, future mailings? I guess he means follow-up mailings, fixed mailings, corrected mailings. I hope he doesn't mean in future elections. (laughs) And that uh, the vendor will make sure that people who receive erroneous envelopes receive new ones. He says, we will ensure on behalf of the voters in Brooklyn that the paper, uh, that the proper ballots and ballot envelopes are in the hands of the voters in advance of Election Day so that they can vote. Around 140,000 ballots in the area have already been mailed. It is unclear how many people are affected. So this is bad for those people who don't notice, who got excited, saw their uh, a ballot in the mail and said, let me get this back right away. And they sent it back in an envelope that doesn't have their names on it. Well, that uh, ballot could be voided. And I hope they'll New York City figures out how to get in touch with those voters to come in and somehow have them fix the problem. So anyone affected, they note. Please spread this around, folks who are listening up on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, if you are affected, you can contact by email apply for absentee that's apply the number four absentee at boe 
boardofelections.nyc. Apply for absentee at boe.nyc, or you can call 1-866-VOTE-NYC. Um, the uh, Board of Elections has also tweeted out that information. They say they can also be DM'd via Twitter if you need, but otherwise 866-VOTE-NYC. Uh, and they also put out a notice saying, hey, don't worry about that uh, military issue on the top of the ballots. That doesn't matter. This confusion comes as mail-in voting is, of course, at the center of debate for some reason this election cycle because of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. But, of course, because Trump is using absentee ballots to falsely claim that there will be massive fraud and to cast doubt on the results of the election. And yes, uh, for those of you keeping track at home, these sorts of problems are just one of the reasons that I also have concerns about vote by mail, at least when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. The New York Board of Elections says that even if you received a ballot in the mail, you may still vote in person if you prefer, though it'll make life easier for everyone if you bring your unvoted absentee ballot in with you when you do. You'll be able to surrender it so you're not forced to vote provisionally or something. But man, New York City, come on. Learn how to run an election. This, this is not your first time having problems, New York City. So anyway, yeah, that is just one of the X factors that could come into play pretty much anywhere in the country this year, which polling does not account for. So if you see those good numbers, don't get too excited about them because this could fall apart in any number of ways for Democrats. Uh, another uh, factor is the Republican-packed court system, and that takes us back to Pennsylvania, and yes, to Wisconsin and Michigan and North Carolina, and yes, to the Supreme Court. For that, let's fetch some professional help here. We'll take a quick break and come back with Bradblog.com legal analyst Ernie Canning, who has been watching a lot of the many court battles still raging across the country over voting, and yes, absentee voting. Quick break, and we're back with that, and of course, Desi Doyne's grim... So grim. <laughs> Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yeah, I love you too, Philadelphia, but uh, don't be New York City this year. How's that? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The 2020 election is already underway in several states. 538.com's Nathaniel Rakich, Rakich wrote over the weekend, but that does not mean that the rules are still not changing. In the past eight days alone, he noted over the weekend, four important swing states have tentatively extended the deadline by which mail ballots must be received. Well, that sounds like good news, and in theory, anyway, it is. As we reported here a week or so ago, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that absentee ballots 
can arrive as late as November 6 and still count as long as there is no evidence, for example, a postmark that exists that uh, to show that they were mailed after Election Day on November 3rd. A state judge in Michigan decreed that ballots can be counted as long as they are postmarked by the day before the election. That's November 2nd in Michigan for some reason. But if they are uh, postmarked by November 2nd and received by November 17, they will still be counted. So that's a long time after Election Day, which will make it hard but not impossible for the U.S. Postal Service to slow things down so much that it blocks ballots from arriving on time, unless they really slow walk everything, including the postmark procedure, or just make the ballots disappear altogether, of course. A federal judge in Wisconsin ordered uh, that state to count ballots that are postmarked by November 3rd, as long as they arrive by November 9, so up to six days after the election. That's good. Um, although that uh, decision, I believe, has currently been stayed as it is being appealed up the chain by the Republicans. And North, uh, North Carolina, almost called it North Korea, North Carolina reached a tentative court settlement with plaintiffs that, among other things, would allow ballots to count as long as they are postmarked by November 3rd and arrive by November 12th. Uh, importantly, however, these changes are not set in stone. Republicans continue to contest them in court. At the very least, GOP legislative leaders in Wisconsin have already appealed that federal judge's decision to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And today, Republican Pennsylvania legislative leaders have appealed the state Supreme Court's decision on extending uh, how long ballots can show up to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'll get to that in a moment. These rulings increase the odds that the media outlets will not be able to declare a winner in those four states on election night with so many ballots that could potentially change the results that could still come in in the ensuing days. And given the pivotal role those states are likely to play in the presidential election, 538 says there is a 56% chance that one of those states will decide the Electoral College. The article, and I'll try to remember to link to it when I post today's show at Bradblog, gives the mail ballot receipt deadlines and whether ballots are accepted after Election Day or not in the 14 states that they consider to be tipping point states. States, uh, you know, that are likely to be the one that puts either Joe Biden or Donald Trump over the 270 electoral college vote margin mark that would be needed to win the presidency. So if you are unsure of the deadline for mail ballots where you live for the deadline to arrive for them to arrive at your local election headquarters, be sure to check it out right now. Better yet. Be sure to get in early and deliver it by hand, if possible, to election headquarters or to an early voting site or to an absentee ballot drop box. Check your local rules right now. Do not wait. Thank you. Because a lot of this, even, uh, you know, for uh, Pennsylvania, a lot of this 35 days out from Election Day uh, could still change. Pennsylvania's Republican legislative leaders asked the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday to stop a decision by that state's high court 
to count mail-in ballots received up to three days after Election Day. The Pennsylvania State Supreme Court ruled in the Democrats' favor on a number of mail voting rules a week or so ago, permitting voters to turn in ballots, yes, to drop boxes in addition to using the Postal Service. Uh, Yes, Republicans in the Trump campaign opposed that. They uh, the state Supremes uh, uh, continued to block a Republican effort to allow partisan poll watchers to be stationed in counties where they do not live and to allow the ballots to be to be returned up to three days after Election Day. The legislators asked the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in only on the ruling about pushing back the deadlines for mail ballots to arrive. The state court said such ballots must be counted if they are postmarked by November 3. And even if they are not, quote, unless a preponderance of the evidence shows that the ballots, in fact, were mailed after Election Day. Joining us now to discuss uh, what we may expect in some of these cases if and when they reach the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court is Bradblog.com legal analyst Ernie Canning, who I should note was also a senior advisor for Veterans for Bernie back in the day, the day being 2016. Uh, Oh, Mr. Canning, it has been a while. Welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How are you, Brad? Oh, don't ask. Anyway, I'm hanging in there. Hope you're doing uh, as well or better. Listen, I want to touch base on a couple of these ballot battles uh, over these deadlines and such that I just referenced. But given the state of the U.S. Supreme Court following the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Trump and GOP effort to ram through in record time a new Supreme Court justice, Before Election Day, because, as Trump has said over and over again, he needs nine members of the on the court to decide election issues in his favor. I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts quickly on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and what this hypocritical move to put someone on the court just days before an election uh, means uh, after, you know, voting has already begun in 20 states back in 2016. They. After Scalia died almost 300 days before the election, they claim that the American people should have a voice in selecting the next justice. So uh, your thoughts on on all of the above, Ernie? Well, if I start with Amy uh, Barrett, I I think I agree with everything that Mark Joseph Stern from Slate uh, had to tell you the other day uh, regarding her, except that it's not unique. The concerns that he expressed Mm -hmm. regarding her appointment are not limited to her, and they date back really to the 1980s when... See, the thing is, the Republicans have have taken the long view regarding our court system. Mm -hmm. The Democrats haven't. And uh, what happened in 1987 was that the nomination of Robert Bork, who was the Solicitor General who carried out the Saturday Night Massacre for Mm -hmm. Nixon, uh, was met with a powerful opposition because his views were so well-known. And I wanted to read to you something that uh, Senator Ted Kennedy said during the 1987 war fight about mm-hmm. his nomination, because it still applies and applies to every Federalist Society jurist that has been nominated since then. And, and, just, to, in, and, and just to make clear, so Amy Coney Barrett, this far right-wing judge, she is also a member of the Federalist Society, like all of these uh, Supreme Court like justices all, that have been named recently on the Republican side? 
like all of the five right-wing majority on the Supreme Court, okay. every one of them is connected to the Federalist Society. Okay. And the Federalist Society was founded by Robert Bork mm-hmm. and has been funded all through this time by the right-wing billionaires like the Koch brothers, Richard mm-hmm. Mellonscape, others. Right. And they are what uh, Professor Cass Sunstein, law professor, has, I think from the University of Chicago, referred to as radicals in robes. Mm-hmm. They are ideologues who wear robes. And this is what Senator Kennedy said about it at the time. This was during the four fight over Robert Bork. In choosing Robert Bork, President Reagan has selected a nominee who is unique in fulminating opposition to fundamental constitutional principles as they are broadly understood in our society. He has expressed opposition time and again in a long line of attacks on landmark Supreme Court decisions protecting civil rights, the rights of women, the right to privacy, and other individual rights and liberties. Judge Bork may be President Reagan's ideal ideological choice, but that choice is not acceptable to Congress and the country and is not acceptable as a justice on the nation's highest court. Bork's writing was so extensive and his radical views were so well known that they were repulsive in 1987. So what they started doing with the Thomas nomination was they would evade any possibility of being pinned down on their judicial philosophy during the confirmation hearings. In fact, during the the Roberts confirmation hearing, one uh, uh, University of uh, California, San Diego law professor observed that trying to pin Roberts down on his judicial philosophy was akin to trying to nail Jello to a wall. Mm -hmm. And so they have time and again, and not just with the Supreme Court, the Republicans have had... When Democrats were in power, they would use the filibuster. They would use every meaning to keep all these judicial appointments, as many vacancies as possible. And it was usually done in the past at the lower court level, both the intermediate appellate courts and, mm-hmm. and, and the district courts, so they could pack those courts. And it went largely unnoticed by most of the public. What happened with the Supreme Court that was so unusual this time around was first with with the blocking of Obama's pick for 11 mm-hmm. months going in, and now uh, rushing uh, justice in. So what was a totally unacceptable view in 1987 is now a view held by five members of the Supreme Court, and if this pick it goes in, it will be six. And they are not only committed, there, there may be some minor differences, for example, with uh, you know gay rights or something like that, But when it comes to the basic issues concerning fairness and and equity in our society, these are all right-wing ideologues who are designed to, as Mark said, that uh, they would be, every one of them might satisfy a a robber baron in the 1800s, but it would make make living in our society the dark ages for everybody else. Well, and that Uh, is where we are, uh, Ernie. We are looking at the dark ages. We're looking down the, the gaping maw of what appears to be a new dark age. With all of these courts, I mean, it's mission accomplished in many ways, packing the courts as they have with these far-right Federalists who, you're right, years ago they would have been considered extreme. Now they're just uh, right down the middle, and you have uh, a guy like uh, Justice Kavanaugh actually being at the center of the court. But my uh, time here is limited, Ernie, because I, I, I got to get to Green News shortly, so I want to get some uh, thoughts. Right now what we're looking at at the Supreme Court, and this is really true whether... 
uh, Amy Coney Barrett is uh, confirmed or not, as I suspect she will be. What we're looking at is something that... I hope you can explain this very quickly so people understand how the court may very well overturn excellent lower court rulings like some of those that I just ran through. They may overturn them with this made-up so-called Purcell principle as if it's some sort of law or constitutional mandate or a commandment carved by God into a tablet somewhere. Very quickly, what is the Purcell principle? How does it work? And what, you know, and, and then we can talk about how it may affect the cases in front of us here. Well, I, I can answer both the affected. If I explain the Purcell principle, that is a federal court doctrine. In fact, there's over at uh, Rick Hassan's blog, he and a NYU law professor, uh, Rick Pildes, uh, posted that today. What it is is a doctrine about the equitable powers of the federal courts. It is not a principle of substantive federal constitutional law. And as Rick Hassan added to that, uh, the Supreme Court would not have the power to stay or overturn state court decisions for coming in too late, whereas under the Purcell principle for a federal court, if the court makes a change too close to the election, then they will not allow that change to go effect. In other words, an injunction that's on the eve of the election because they're concerned about confusing voters at the time of the election. So basically um, they say with the Purcell principle, even if this uh, ruling is good and it's fact-based and everyone agrees and it might save tens of thousands of voters from being suppressed, they'll say, well, due to the Purcell principle, uh, it's just too late to make this change. It'll cause chaos. So if thousands of people are, are have their votes suppressed, so be it. It's just too late in the game to change the to to to, to over uh, to change that law, essentially. Is yeah. That- and it has in the past. It's, it's cut both ways. If you recall, when so you and I were involved in mm-hmm. covering the photo ID laws in uh, Wisconsin, they ended up upholding, I think they upheld a, a temporary block on it, maybe the other way around, mm-hmm. Wisconsin or Texas, one of the two had, one case was upheld the, the voter suppression and the other they did not, simply because they were applying the same Purcell principle, so, and it was just direction which which way it went. In the cases you've listed, mm-hmm. the ones that were the state court decisions, which are everyone except Wisconsin, mm-hmm. I think they're in pretty good shape and that those extensions will probably be upheld. In the case of, and there was also, I think, North Carolina was another one where they had a... Uh, well, this was uh, a court... A consent decree. Okay. And, okay. And, and those are all in state courts. The Wisconsin case in the Seventh Circuit, the way it's made up now, you can forget the extension of the deadline that that federal judge gave. If they, if they had stated and it's not going to be reinstated under Purcell. I, I think... Uh, you think uh, they'll you think uh, they'll basically say no? It's too late. We we won't accept ballots that come in three days after the election in in Wisconsin. With what we know with the Seventh Circuit, that's absolutely the way that I see it coming out. And, and then that gets yeah. appealed to the Supreme Court, and oh, it won't. If the it Supreme won't? Court won't will not allow the ballots to come in late either. They'll they'll leave the Seventh Circuit in, Actually, in place. So. So I think the Seventh Circuit ruling that the judge had extended mm-hmm. the deadline, that ruling is stayed and it's not going to be reestablished. If, if you get well, what I'm yeah, that. no, I do. And I'm not sure you're right. We'll see, because they did actually. The Supreme Court let uh, 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 the ballots that came in after Election Day for the primary in Wisconsin. They actually, I think that was the one thing they allowed to stand. Uh, originally, the lower court had said, well, ballots themselves 
uh, can be postmarked after Election Day because they were so late in getting out. Uh, that was struck down, but they did allow them to come in uh, uh, several days after the election so long as they were postmarked by Election Day. So we will see. Well, but it's, it's, it's possible, yeah. but certainly they're not going to prevail in the Seventh Circuit. I, I, I just The Seventh Circuit is oh, now... Yeah dominated and that that is part of what we what I was talking about yep. with the change of the courts uh the 7th circuit if uh, democrats had overridden the filibuster and when there was an opening on that court there would be on the entire 7th circuit a majority of judges who were not appointed by republicans mm-hmm. but they didn't and now the majority is appointed by Republicans. They're packed with these Federalists. Uh, Ernie, i got to get out, but uh, I do not ever recall seeing so many election cases in so many states uh, before an election. Thank Mark Elias. What's that? (laughs) You can thank Mark Elias. The guy has been in one case after another trying to defend us against this attack on democracy. Well, he is, uh, Mark Elias is, of course, the lead uh, uh, lawyer, lead election attorney for for the Democrats. But it's not just him. I mean, he's been going in and suing uh, to try to lift restrictions on absentee voting. But at the same time, Republicans and the Democrats, uh, I'm sorry, Republicans in the Trump campaign have been going in there and trying to sue to... Uh, roll back and and increase restrictions. I mean, it is coming from all sides. It is very difficult to keep up. I don't know how you're holding up, but I appreciate your help uh, that that uh, you I rely on you every day to hear about one case or another. So thank you, Ernie. I got to get out. I'm sorry. We'll have longer next time, but we've got to get to the Green News Report so Desi Doyen can make everyone uh, want to jump off a, a bridge somewhere. You understand how that goes, right? Take care, Brad. You too, Des. Thank you. Ernie Cannon, you can find him, of course, at bradblog.com and on the Twitters at can, the number four, I-N-G. So C-A-N-N, number four, I-N-G, for some reason. Who knows? Thanks, Ernie. You bet. Okay, quick break, and hey, cheer up. The Green News Report is straight ahead with Desi Doyen. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Of course, uh, Desi Doyen, I have been uh, joking throughout the show about how, how grim today's Green News report is. <laughs> I should note, however, that uh, you don't get to make the news. You just get to report it. And I know what that's like every day as the news is grim. Um, yeah, and trying to sift through everything and say, okay, well, this is the most important thing, although these other important things are also going on, but yeah. we'll have to try to get to those later. Yep. 
And that brings us to our latest Green News Report. Experts say that diseases associated with this amoeba have a 97% mortality rate. Texas town's water system shut down due to deadly brain-eating amoeba. The Tongass National Forest in Alaska has been called America's Amazon. Trump administration opens up nation's largest protected forest to logging. Sullivan's a Republican senator, and is it important that he gets elected? Pebble Mine CEO resigns after boasting about obedient Alaskan politicians, plus... She is going to strip our federal laws of all environmental and labor regulations. Trump's nominee to replace Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not an advocate of the environment or public health. Who could have guessed it? All of that and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Do your children debate you? Do they debate you? Debate me. They troll me. My one son has a son in his door that says zero emissions 2030 or do not enter. (laughs) Congresswoman Katie Porter's son for president. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you got a boatload of news here today, so don't mind me. I'll try to shut up. (laughs) Okay. Well, first, in southeast Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has issued a disaster declaration for the town of Lake Jackson in Brazoria County, where all 27,000 residents are under a boil water notice after a brain-eating amoeba discovered in the drinking water supply killed a six-year-old boy. Mm. An investigation is underway to find out how the deadly amoeba, Nigleria fowleri, which is found in warm, fresh water and soil, got into the municipal water system. Wow. Wow, 27,000 people affected by this. Yes. Not good. In California, as we go to air, another round of record-breaking heat and high winds is driving another explosion of new wildfires, destroying homes and forcing thousands to evacuate during a pandemic. Several wineries have been destroyed or damaged in wine country in a new fire that broke out on Sunday in areas that had previously escaped the catastrophic fires of 2017 and 2018. 25 large wildfires are currently burning in California. Dozens more are burning from Texas to Washington. Also, while nearly 40 people have been directly killed by fires in California, new research estimates that the actual death toll is likely much higher due to wildfire smoke. Researchers say new mortality data indicates the dense concentrations of smoke since August have contributed to around 1,200 excess deaths and nearly 5,000 emergency room visits that would not otherwise have occurred. And we're about to have another heat wave over the next three or four days. Yep. In Alaska, the U.S. CEO of the proposed controversial Pebble Mine has resigned a day after being caught on tape boasting of his control over Alaska politicians. Tom Collier, who stood to gain a $12 million bonus if the Pebble Mine is approved, resigned after recorded Zoom calls showed him boasting that Senator Lisa Murkowski would not do or say anything to damage the mine's approval. And he said this about Republican Senator Dan Sullivan now running for re-election. So Murkowski isn't up for election. When a senator's not up for election, they don't do anything. 
and Sullivan's going into his second. So he's got a battle on his hands, and we're trying to work with him to make sure he doesn't go and say something negative. The tapes also revealed that the company is hiding the true size and scope of the mine. Their plans are for the mine to be much, much bigger and last decades longer than they outlined in their permit filings. And no doubt present an even greater threat to the salmon fisheries up there. Exactly. The Trump administration has moved to open up the pristine Tongass National Forest in Alaska, the nation's largest remaining intact wilderness and one of the world's largest temperate rainforests, to clear-cut logging and development. The administration moved to lift the Clinton-era protection known as the Roadless Rule, which protected forests for generations of Americans. Worse, the old-growth Tongass is also one of the nation's largest carbon sinks, absorbing nearly 10% of U.S. carbon dioxide emissions. Why does he even need a second term? There will be nothing left to destroy. Finally, Donald Trump has nominated right-wing federal judge Amy Coney Barrett for the U.S. Supreme Court seat left vacant by the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Slate legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern on the broadcast warned that all environment and climate legislation and regulations, past, present, and future, are at risk if Barrett is confirmed. She is going to strip our federal laws of all environmental and labor regulations. She is going to abolish the federal government's ability to regulate carbon emissions, mercury, lead. She is going to remake this entire country's law in a way that might satisfy a robber baron of the 1800s, but will make everyone else feel rightly like they are living in the dark ages. And the horrible thing, even if Donald Trump doesn't win a second term, He'll keep on destroying this country for a generation because of the Supreme Court. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Yeah. Uh, I told you. I warned people that they may want to go jump off a bridge, (laughs) but please do not. We need you. We need everyone in this fight. All hands on deck. We can turn this thing around. I know it feels like everything is tumbling and crumbling down, but... uh, we can and we will rebuild. And frankly, we don't have much of a choice. Correct. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Bradblog.com's legal analyst, Ernest A. Canning, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. That, of course, is made possible by those of you who are kind enough to stop by and support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. We rely 100% on listeners like you. So if you can help us out, we thank you in advance. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. That is it. I will see you there until we see you here next time with our special coverage of whatever the hell happens Tuesday <laughs> night in Ohio in the first presidential debate. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.